0: Good morning, Your Honors. May it please the court, counsel. My name is Brandon Schwartz, and it's my honor to represent Aaron Carlson Corporation in this case. This case reaches this high court at the interesting intersection of what a veil piercing claim is, who it is against, and what it seeks to recover on the one hand, and what authority a receiver has on the other hand. The Court of Appeals, premised on a fundamental misunderstanding of what a veil piercing claim is, premised on an extrapolation of this court's holding in Snyder Electric Co. versus Fleming, which was resolved on distinguishable claims, and by interposing its will for the will of the legislature, simultaneously flipped veil-piercing law on its head and radically expanded the power of a receiver. This court respectfully should reverse the Court of Appeals' annunciation of two new rules here. One, that veil-piercing claims are now claims against the corporation rather than the shareholders, and two, that a receiver has authority to assert claims which do not belong to the respondent or relate to receivership property. I'm going to start with what a veil piercing claim is, who it is against, and what it seeks to recover, as each of these establish why a veil piercing claim is outside.
1: The council, doesn't that kind of go against the purpose of a, appointing a receiver, which is that they have access to everything and it's one efficient process. And so tell me why that would not apply in this instance.
0: Your Honor, I believe it doesn't apply because the receivership process is meant to resolve claims against a corporation or that the corporation has against others and resolve what to do with the assets of the corporation. A veil piercing claim is not either of those. It's not a claim against the corporation. It's a claim against the shareholders. It's not seeking to recover property of the corporation. It's seeking to recover against the shareholders, separate and distinct. Counsel,
2: uh, I got a little lost in some of the minutiae about what was going on here. And um, I'm wondering if you can tell me uh, what relationship, uh, how did the receiver get selected and does the receiver have any relationship to any of the parties here?
0: Sure. The receiver, uh, during the pendency of our underlying claim against LSI Corporation, uh, Mr. Cohen and Shaffy, who are, uh, shareholders of LSI Corporation and other related entities put LSI into receivership. They had a prior relationship with the receiver in which they brought him in to try and help turn LSI Corporation around. And they had worked with this receiver in the past. This. Uh, so,
2: so my question is, the, or the, the, the area of concern that I have is it looks to me, like from the facts of this case, that the receiver has a... Professional, maybe personal, but professional anyway, relationship with the um, principals. Is that right? I share that
0: concern, Your Honor. We did not reach the merits of the veil piercing claim at the district court level, but I share the court's concern in that and, regard.
2: But my, but my concern is that, well, anyway, let, we'll just stop right there. From the standpoint of the record, at least there is some relationship.
0: Correct.
3: Counsel? Counsel. Is uh, a veil piercing claim a claim or a
0: remedy? I believe, well, that's an interesting question. I, I believe it is a claim that provides a remedy to a debtor. But you need an
3: underlying breach of contract or uh, financial claim against the debtor, do you not?
0: I think you need a, you need a claim that you had against the corporation. And then, if the corp, and then you look at whether the corporation was treated as merely a facade uh, for the benefit of the underlying shareholders. Uh, I looked at that, Your Honor, because I, I, I had the same question as to whether a veil-piercing claim is by itself a claim or you need something else, a, a different tort, so to speak. And I think the, the court's case in Victoria uh, Elevator made clear that it is a separate claim. It doesn't need to be, for instance, a breach of fiduciary duty claim in which then veil-piercing is the remedy. It is a separate claim against the shareholders if they have uh, disregarded the corporate form.
3: Let me ask you also a question I'm going to ask opposing counsel. Um, I've taken a look at the receiver's report. There's no indication in the report the receiver considered any kind of claim against Cohen, Chaffee, and Kobe. Is there anything in the record as to whether
0: that was on the receiver's radar screen? The, there was, there's nothing in the record as to whether it was on the receiver's radar screen. And you're right. There was, it's undisputed that it was not brought... Or considered at least what's in the record before this court.
4: Counsel, in in your answer, initial answer to Justice McKegg, you were sort of describing how a receiver works, and and as I was listening to you, it struck me that your description sounds just like what happened in the Thresher case. And I know you your position, at least from your brief, is that Thresher was simply about uh, recovering uh, property that had been fraudulently. Um, uh, taken from the corporation and, and thus it falls squarely, it lines up squarely with the statute as well. But it does seem to me though that what Thresher is also about in a more general sense is the corporation, the receiver on behalf of the creditors going after or go, fraudulently conveyed property that had been fraudulently given to shareholders and so the the receiver was was attempting to go after those shareholders. What's different here, I guess, is what I'm trying to get at.
0: Sure. So in Thresher, and where I think it, it's distinguishable from what a veil piercing claim is, when there's a fraudulent conveyance or a fraudulent transfer, the corporation has been harmed. The corporation's money has left from the corporation that could otherwise be used to satisfy the creditors and now is in the pockets of the shareholders or wherever it has gone. But when we look at a veil piercing claim one of the elements that this court has held is not an underlying harm to the corporation such that funds have been transferred out to the benefit of the shareholders. Instead, we look at insufficient capitalization for purposes of corporate undertaking, failure to absorb corporate formalities, insolvency of debtor corporation at time of transaction in question, non-functioning of officers and directors. There is not a requirement that there be a fraudulent conveyance or transfer from the corporation to the shareholders. And that's where I think the Court of Appeals reliance on this. I'm, side I'm or-
4: wondering, if, though, if that isn't just the facts, I don't want to minimize that, of Thresher, because the, the broader language, it seems to me, in Thresher suggests that the, corpor- that the receiver is standing in the shoes and, uh, and to the benefit of the creditors and asserting any rights that they could have asserted. I'm just
0: wondering if you're reading it too narrowly. Because that's the proposition the Court of Appeals cited it for. I, I think it's asserting it does stand in the shoes of the creditors as it relates to claims that the creditors has against LSI Corporation here, or the corporation. It does not stand in the shoes of the creditors for a veil-piercing claim that it has against the shareholders. What
4: language would you point to me to and Thresher that, that says that? Or is there a, a case that says that?
0: So th- I don't think Thresher, Thresher says that because it wasn't involving a bill-pearson claim. And if we look at what the Snyder case actually held, the Snyder case was dealing with a breach of fiduciary duty claim. In fact, as we cited to in our brief, uh, the language that the Court of Appeals relied upon was when this court was resolving the breach of fiduciary duty claim. And it's easy to see why the receiver would have standing in that regard. The breach of the fiduciary duty by the shareholders caused harm to the corporation thus the corporation would have a claim against the shareholders. A veil piercing claim is not a breach of fiduciary duty claim it's a claim by a creditor here against the shareholders. It's separate and distinct. It's not a claim that LSI corporation could by itself make and because of that if we look at the language of the statutes uh, of what a respondent what a respondent is here, LSI, what property is, and what a receivership has authority to, a bail piercing claim does not fit within those.
4: Counsel, but, let me ask
0: another question, and this is maybe along the lines of
4: Justice Anderson's. I, I got caught up and a little bit lost in the minutiae of it as well. If, as I understand your claim, it's that, well, once the receiver was appointed, Eventually, your client moved to intervene. I think that was in March of 2016. Correct. And that motion was denied. Correct. If you didn't think, if your client didn't think it um, would get, it had the right to any relief in the receivership action for all the reasons you just said, that this isn't a claim against the, receivers, the LSI's property. This is a claim against Cohen and Chaffee. Yep. If that's what you believed, why did you move, what, I'm confused about what was the whole motion about to intervene if you didn't think you could get any relief
0: in that action. It was out of an abundance of caution, Your Honor. Uh, I believe we looked at that before we brought the motion. I believe that a veil piercing claim is outside the authority of a receiver because it's not a claim relating to receivership property and it's not a claim against a corporation. But you see where
4: I'm going because the fact that you moved to intervene would suggest that you thought you could bring that veil piercing action.
0: I, I understand that your honor and it was it was truly out of an abundance of caution to make sure that that door was not foreclosed on us like like it was um, ultimately uh, until we reached the support. In
1: fact, if the receiver had agreed with your interpretation, the receiver could have moved forward
0: with that. I I don't believe the receiver could have your honor because again it's not it goes back to what a veil piercing claim is and what it seeks to recover. The receiver was appointed to to pursue or defend claims of LSI Corporation.
1: But, counsel, what if this court determines that the receiver's role is broader? Does that mean that your claim would be dead, or would you still have the opportunity to present that claim to the receiver?
0: I think it would be dead. The receivership action's been closed, and I think that that's where...
1: But that seems like it goes against your argument, because your argument is that there was no authority under the receivership and that that was a different vein because it was property and assets related to the corporation. If the court determines that the receiver has broader authority and that, in fact, you could pursue the veil-piercing claims, that seems to me like that would be going down a separate path that would have nothing to do with the order that was a result of the first action. Am I making any sense?
0: If the court were to determine that the receiver has broader authority such that it encompassed a veil-piercing claim, then I think that, that would then that is the exact argument that defendants have made here, that it's our claim that it would be barred by collateral attack or race judicata.
1: And do you agree with that?
0: If the if the court were to make it such that the receiver has authority over not just the respondent and the respondent's claims, but now claims of of ACC that are unrelated to receivership property, then yes, I think that that collateral attack in race judicata would apply. I don't think that that's what is the legislature codified in the receivership statutes. I think that that's a, a, a broad widening of a receiver's power and I also think that there's due process concerns in that regard uh, that we, we touched on in our reply is, in a receivership action that ACC did not even have, was not entitled to notice of, could not prevent the appointment of a receiver and its claims were not actually uh, investigated or litigated, how could possibly ACC's veil-piercing claim have been fully resolved in that? That, I think that's a due process issue. I'm a
1: little confused because it seems that you're, at least if I'm hearing your argument correctly, you're saying that these are two distinct matters, that you have separate assets and property related to what the receiver did in this instance. Correct. Which would be separate from what you're doing in the veil-piercing, which is going after the personal assets. And so tell me why that would be collateral
0: estoppel. Because if, the, if this court affirmed the District Court and Court of Appeals and held that a receiver, aside from having authority over LSI Corporation and its assets, also had authority over the individual shareholders and their assets, uh, which I don't think it does under the, uh, under the statutes, I don't think it does, but that's right now that's where we sit. And the Court of Appeals has held that the receiver had what I believe is broader authority than what the legislature gave it. I don't, and to answer the question, as long as I'm understanding it correctly, uh, if this court affirmed it uh, and said, yes, uh, the Court of Appeals was correct, the receiver not only has authority over the respondent and property related to the the respondent, but also over the shareholders and their individual property, um, I I think that would be respectfully incorrect, and I, I think it impermissibly expands upon The statutes, but I think then that if that if the court ruled that way, collateral attack would bar us.
5: And you think that there would be a bar even when the receiver doesn't investigate the claim, or I mean, the receiver was looking to see if these two people were owed money by the corporation, right?
0: Correct. That's where I think that's part of the rub here. I, I don't think that. In an action in which a receivership wasn't uh, the, looking at a veil piercing claim, a veil piercing claim wasn't brought, a veil piercing claim wasn't resolved. How could it possibly have our claim be barred by collateral attack or race judicata? That's that's the rub. That's that's where we take issue with it. And I think if when we look at what this court has held in the Rokeby case versus Western National that the practice of piercing the corporate veil is generally a creditor's remedy used to reach an individual, an individual, so not the corporation, reach the individual, and we look at the definitions of the receivership, that's where we believe the Court of Appeals erred.
4: Counsel, I'm looking at um, subdivision 1-3 of the statute, which says the receiver has the power to assert rights, claims, causes of action, or defenses that relate to receivership property. And so it seems to me one of the things we have to decide is what does it mean to have that, that something relates to receivership property and, and, and I guess my question is this: it, Your claim at, at, at base is that Cohen and Chaffee and and Kobe were in effect using Lsi to put it bluntly as kind of their own little private piggy bank and they were doing all kinds of stuff uh as a result of that and that they were thus sort of this this alter ego well if that's true if then how is it then that your veil piercing claim doesn't at least in a broad sense relate to the receivership property because what they were doing under your theory is they were using it as their bank their private bank i mean there's an intermingling it seems to me that that one could argue was going on there. And so in a broad sense, why is that not... I mean, now you're going after their personal property, I understand that, but the way they got that property was intermingling with LSI under your very theory. Yes.
0: Yeah, so I think when you look at what the definition of receivership property is, it's the property of the respondent, so here LSI, not the property of Mr. Cohen or Mr. Shaffey. Um it, it is an interesting interplay of what, how broad does that get. Um, does, when you say relate to receivership property, does that mean that once it's passed from my hands to your hands, which I believe then it means it's no longer receivership property, uh, respondent's property, uh, because it's not mine anymore. Now it's yours. And that's why I believe that a veil piercing claim is outside of the context of the receivership's authority.
2: And You I, can stand that question on its head and say... Um, you're not seeking um, recovery from receivership assets. You're seeking recovery from the assets that belong to the, these personal parties for their misuse of the corporate form.
0: 100% correct, Your Honor.
2: Yeah, And I, so, that, so it seems to me that's the there's a philosophical problem here that we need to get at the base, and that is does is a receivership designed to get at that kind of remedy? And your argument would would be no.
0: Correct. And I, and I, the. It goes to that, your question, I think, Your Honor, goes hand-in-hand with kind of the public policy argument that the defendants made at the end of their brief, and that if ACC is permitted to pierce the corporate veil here, does that undermine the whole purpose of a receivership? And I don't think it does, because the the purpose of the receivership is to resolve the claims by and against the corporation. A veil-piercing claim is not such a claim.
3: Well, but the question is: Is the claim really by the corporation, Uh, the uh, the the veil-piercing claim? And in that regard, I I was very interested in your citation of the Enray Ozark Equipment Company case because it strikes me maybe the receivership in this regard may be similar to a bankruptcy. That's an A Circuit case. But then, okay, go ahead. No, I'm sorry to interrupt you. Then I did a little more digging and found there's a real division of bankruptcy cases on who owns the 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 veil piercing claim. And some of the cases draw the distinction that if it's a general claim, a general veil piercing claim, then that's the property of in this case the respondent. If it's a more particularized claim, then it's the property of the creditor. What is it about Aaron Carlson Corporation's claim that makes it assuming that were the law or that that would be the law that we would choose,
0: what makes it particularized? Sure. And I, 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 can obviously only speak for Aaron Carlson, uh, not the other creditors. To know what, yeah, but what, what, might what they makes have, your claim different? We, we have, and um, is cited in our original brief. We, we obtained financial records that show that uh, prior to them pushing the receivership, LSI into receivership, there was a plan to fund and pay Aaron Carlson. Uh, and instead of doing that, they, what was cited by the even LSI Corporation's president. They sprung their losses to be able to claim those losses from LSI Corporation to offset the 30 million euros that they had just made from a sale of a different business. I think that that now, if the court were to go that route, that you know, general versus specific, I think that does specify our claim, which is distinguishable from what other creditors may have, because here there was a plan in place to fund, pay, and satisfy the obligation that was owed to Aaron Carlson, and instead. They used the corporation to their own benefit by pushing it into receivership and being able to claim those losses against their uh, sale.
3: And would the same plan have funded other
0: creditors? And if so, who were they? What does the record tell us? I don't, I, I don't know that answer. I know that we, uh, there was a plan in place just prior to the end of 2015 to fund the business for the next year. Uh, and then all of a sudden there was 180 that was, the, they pushed, they were going to try and sell it, and instead push it into receivership. Um, and I think that, to go back to the, the distinguishing piece of those cases, I think a lot of them turn on whether there was a, a fraudulent conveyance such that there was a, a harm first to the corporation such that the corporation could then not satisfy its debts. And I think that's where there's that interesting interplay between a veil Pearson claim and the receivership statutes. Here, uh, when we look at... What authority and power the receiver has, I think, and I, I believe that if just the plain language of the statutes, we fall outside of that when you well, look at Well, it the is
3: true that the statute specifically gives the receiver the power to pursue a remedy asserted by a creditor under the Fraudulent uh,
0: Transfer Act. Correct. That that when you and look how, at how does that help you or hurt you? I don't, I, th- I don't think it, it's either way because it, we're not bringing a fraudulent conveyance or fraudulent transfer. Now it's called the Uniform uh, Oof- Voidable Transaction Act. It
3: used to be UFTA.
0: Yeah, right. Um, and now it's, yeah, UVTA. <laughs> U- U- but uh, it's, that's not our, the claim that we're bringing here. We have not brought a fraudulent conveyance claim. And that's where it goes back to you can see when it's a fraudulent conveyance claim why it falls within the receiver's authority because the corporation has been harmed. The money went improperly from the corporation to the shareholders. That's separate and distinct question from what a veil piercing claim is. And that's not what we've brought here. So I don't think that uh, it either helps or hurts. I think it's just not relevant to our case. And I think that um, when, when we look at- Does its
5: existence <laughs> suggest that, um, that the statute should be interpreted narrowly though? in terms of the authority of receivers? Because it's very specific about what remedies may be asserted, um, what creditors' remedies may be asserted.
0: I I believe so, Your Honor, because if the the legislature had intended that a receiver could assert a veil-piercing claim, it could have written it right into the statute, just like it did with a a fraudulent conveyance act. It could have done that. um, Then I think what they would have needed to do is say that Uh, Because the receiver can bring such a veil piercing claim, we need to give notice to each of these entities to be able to properly pursue their claims. That's not what the legislature did, and I don't think that the expansion here is correct by the Court of Appeals.
5: Counsel, just help me remember the facts. Did, Did your client have a judgment against LSI before the receivership action? so the and does that matter
0: so our action uh against the corporation was commenced on july 22nd 2015. the receiver ac- receivership action commenced january fifteenth of 2016 so our action was stayed it stayed during receivership process the receivership process then ended with the order approving the sale on may 6 2016 and we received our judgment october 21st of 2016. because during the receivership process any claims against the corporation are automatically stayed, just like in the bankruptcy context. Um, so I don't believe that, and, and that's where, to go back to your, uh, the question earlier, of, that's where we brought it out of an abundance of caution of, um, do we need to do this here to make sure that it's preserved?
5: So the, the, the order appointing a receiver in terms of the power given to the receiver is quite broad. Um, and I'm just wondering, and maybe you, you can address this on your rebuttal time, um, unless you're prepared to answer it now, but paragraphs 32 and 37 in particular seem quite broad to me, and I'm just wondering if, if how we should interpret those paragraphs um, in connection with your argument
0: here. I think when you look at it, though, Your Honor, uh, for instance, it's, quote, collect any information as to the assets of the company, end quote investigate, pursue and compromise and settle any and all claims that the company may have. A veil piercing claim is not a claim of the company.
5: It, it could be. It's just your argument is it's not here.
0: I don't, I don't think a veil piercing claim can be a claim of the company. And there's um, secondary sources and cases from other jurisdictions that say a corporation can never pierce its own veil for its own benefit because you're then taking money from the shareholders that essentially go back to the shareholders. And so I don't think that a veil piercing claim is a claim of the company or related to property of the company, and I see that I'm uh, now out of time. So thank, thank you. Thank you,
5: counsel, you have 10 minutes for rebuttal. Thank you. Uh, Mr. Wegener.
6: Thank you, and may it, may it please the court. I represent uh, respondents Cohen Chaffee and Kobe Equities here today. Minnesota law authorizes a receiver to pursue a veil piercing claim on behalf of creditors of the debtor corporation. In this case, the district court did not err in granting respondents' motion for summary judgment. The receiver had the authority under the statute under the appointment order issued by the receivership court and under the broad common law principles that have been formulated around receivership over the years. You would
2: agree that neither the order nor the statute actually makes reference to a veil-piercing claim? Correct, Your Honor. So let's go to the philosophical question that I raised with opposing counsel. And really, he highlighted it again at the end of his remarks um, in his his, uh, uh, response here. Let me ask you, it, the fact that the veil-piercing claim is against the principles for misuse of the corporate form, and not suggesting there's been any as to that, but just as a matter of theory, um, doesn't that make it a bad fit for a receivership claim? I mean, a receivership claim is about collecting assets that belong to the corporation. It seems to me this is something different.
6: No, abs- absolutely not, Your Honor, for a, for a whole host of reasons. Number one, a veil-piercing claim seeks to disregard the corporate entity. There's all this discussion about, well, it's not the corporations, it's not the corporations. Well, if you go forward and assert a veil-piercing claim, an alter-ego claim, if you will, then Cohen, Chaffee, Kobe Equities is the same as the debtor corporation in this case. So they have to be involved. I mean, in some respects, it's almost a sham to allow a receiver... Ship to go forward and look. A receivership is uh, the receiver is an agent of the court, is an officer of the court, supposed to do a lot of the court's business in order uh, to dissolve and wind up a corporation. Wouldn't the court and a receiver be very, very, very interested in a claim of
7: veil piercing against insiders of the corporation? Isn't that kind of the part of the point here, though? That for the corporation or the receiver standing in the shoes of the corporation to assert a veil-piercing claim, basically the receiver saying, I am a sham. Yeah, essentially... And so, and so how does that... I mean, going to Justice Anderson's point, how, this receiver in this case certainly didn't say, I'm a sham. Correct. They acted as if the corporation was a legitimate corporation. Correct. So how does that... Doesn't that affect your claim pretty directly, particularly yep. since we're talking in equity here, and, uh, and Cohen and your clients actually basically appointed this receiver? Well you know
6: I think it's interesting that ACC brings a lot of complaints now but ACC participated in the receivership. ACC didn't receive notice of the actual appointment of the receiver but ACC could have objected and said hey this is too close too close a case, bring in a disinterested third party to act as receiver in
3: this Council, case. Counsel, I must be missing something. I thought ACC sought to intervene for the purpose of opposing the receivership. That's right, Your Honor. Well, and the court denied their, their intervention. <laughs> well, it's... So why, why are you saying ACC could have done this and that? Could I'm, have done I'm having more. trouble with that.
6: Yeah, no, I understand, Your Honor. I think it's, it's a finer point. The motion filed by ACC was to intervene, and to stop the sale of certain assets of the debtor corporation. And I think part and parcel of that was an objection to the appointment of the receiver in the first place. But I think if you take it all the way through, if ACC had a complaint with that, uh, we should have had notice, we should have objected, bad receiver, bad result, they could have appealed. Instead, ACC stood by and essentially watched the remaining assets of the debtor corporation be transferred to Cohen and Chaffee. I mean, the, re- the receiver determined and the court endorsed the ultimate finding of the court, determining that Cohen and Chaffee were involved in an arm's length transaction with, 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 that, with the debtor in this case, with LSI. So, I mean, I think sort of the nub of the case is how do you reconcile the court determining that Cohen and Chaffee were disinterested third-party creditors entitled to a first priority lien on the remaining assets of ACC, I'm sorry, of LSI.
5: what part of the district court's order are you relying on for your argument that the district court found that the individuals were disinterested here?
6: Well, disinterested may be a stretch, Your Honor. I'm saying, and I probably should quote directly from the order, maybe the proper way of characterizing it was Cohen and Chaffee were entitled to the remaining assets following all of the work that the receiver had done in recovering those assets. And I think implicit in that is the finding that no one had a complaint about Cohen and Chaffee's conduct during their involvement with the company. I mean, look, Cohen and Chaffee lost $5 million on this case. I mean, they got hit pretty hard in their two and a half to three year dealings with LSI Corporation. Let me turn just briefly to the statute. A portion that the court has pointed out is in Subdivision 1A3, I would point the court's attention to Subdivision 1 B two small eyes, which provides in part, uh, allows the receiver the powers to uh, maintain in the receiver's name or in the name of the respondent any action to enforce any right claim, cause of action, or defense. And again, since the receiver is standing in the shoes of the creditors, it would certainly seem that a veil-piercing claim, like the other claims we've discussed so today, so where,
7: where this is, I think the issue, though, where do you, what authority do you point to that the receiver, under this statute, can stand in the shoes of the creditors? Under
6: the statute, it does not provide that. I'm going to older common law
7: uh, principles what, recited what in the law, cases. Which cases? Well, the the Thresher case, for example. See, exam- but wasn't the Thresher case actually a statutory interpretation case? interpreting the corporate statutes back in the 1890s which you know back then there were no veil piercing claims right because shareholders were responsible responsible for the debts of the corporation there wasn't the shield in place but it seems to me that that was just an interpretation of of the corporate statute at the time and and which doesn't apply in this case well it's the, it, it, that's true your honor i mean the
6: portion i'm looking at cites uh, from the uh, decision by justice mitchell the receiver has substantially the same powers and functions as an assignee in bankruptcy which i think is a point that justice Ullahog made up there's some tension on that but it
7: was it's under the way the statute was dis- that chapter chapter 26 of the statutes at the time right C- correct so uh, so that's not really common law principle that's a statutory interpretation interpreting a totally different statute but, but i think i believe other cases though have
6: continued to recite and, and point to the, the receiver's duties to the creditors as a whole to collect money on behalf of the creditors similar to a bankruptcy trustee well, and com- to pay those amounts.
3: Counsel, when you're looking at little 2, this is uh, subdivision 1B1, little 2, it says maintain in the receiver's name or in the name of the respondent any action, etc. Isn't that simply talking about who the named party is supposed to be. The receiver can do it in the receiver's name, can do it in the name of the corporation, maybe in both. It doesn't seem to me to grant any broader rights to the receiver to assert, among other things, creditor claims. Well, I,
6: I think it does, Your Honor, because it, it's in the section of powers, right? And subdivision one is powers, and subdivision two is duties. And I think it could be interpreted and could be read to further reiterate the expansive nature of of the receiver's power. But when
3: it's granting power to assert a claim, it says power to assert. This says maintain in the receiver's name or in the name of the respondent. Um, and and apropos of that point, um, when you look at sub, B, sub B2, it specifically calls out the right to assert on behalf of a creditor a fraudulent transfer claim. if If that power was encompassed in little two, and then why is it called out in subpart B2?
6: Unclear, Your Honor. I mean, I understand the court's point. Um, it's the way it's drafted. And to a point made earlier, I don't believe that a veil-piercing claim is that far... Uh, down the road, if you will, from a fraudulent conveyance or a fraudulent transfer claim. I know there's been some discussion as to the nature of those claims, and frequently it's, they're brought to put money back in the hands of, of the corporation, but sometimes they're brought by creditors too, and creditors will assert those claims. So I, I think overall the statute is being read too narrowly
3: by ACC in this case. Okay. One other question. <clears throat> I've taken a look at uh, Judge Moreno's order approving the receiver's final report. And I wonder if you can point me to anything in the order where Judge Moreno essentially puts to bed or releases creditors' claims of, the, of veil piercing. Is there anything in there that no, you can there point isn't. to? No, there isn't, Your Honor. There isn't. Because in paragraph six, he does bar claims um, against the receiver, the company... Or the company's assets, but there's nothing in there about barring claims against third parties, such as officers, directors, and shareholders well, then, uh, how, how does that cut? Well, it gets us into this
6: issue, your Honor. Of what did the order mean? What did the final order mean? one, when it found that Cohen and Chaffee were properly secured parties and entitled to the remaining assets of 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 Elcide did that have significance or could that simply be relitigated later? The other part that I think is important is you know there is some benefit to bringing finality to this entire process. The finality of creditors bringing their claims to the receiver, the receiver collecting assets, the court overseeing it, and that tends to be lost if well, are we going to start picking apart this order and maybe we'll allow somebody to go after someone later on this claim, but maybe on that claim? I mean, I've made a number of arguments in here about the, the receiver being in the best position to determine these claims, had access to all the records, all the financial information of the debtor. I mean, if the debtor was being taken for a ride by my clients, one would think that The receiver would have found that or would have been very
2: interested in that information. You know, this is the very first question I asked opposing counsel, and maybe it's not teed up here because of the procedural posture here, but the appointment of this particular receiver um, doesn't, on its face, doesn't look like it's a relationship designed to do a lot of deep digging for um, uh, veil-piercing claims. Is that something we should be concerned about? I think it should be. I think the court should be concerned about that,
6: but but that issue should have been brought up in the receivership action, or it should have been the basis of an appeal. So the court of appeals could have taken a look at that issue and said, "Yeah, there's something funny about this receiver." I think we're way, way, way past that in this case today to argue, "Well, that doesn't look right." Well, I don't know how we get to that. You know, it was over three years ago. And it's well, what,
3: whatever looks right or doesn't, I mean, this receiver is very highly regarded in that particular receivership community. But did the receiver actually do anything to explore a veil piercing claim? I mean, did it hire independent counsel, that is, counsel not retained by Cohen, Chaffee, and Kobe to look into it? Is there anything in the receiver's report that suggests that a veil piercing claim was explored? There's nothing in
6: the report that suggests it was, was explored your honor. Although as, as the court as I believe pointed out the order itself indicated that one of the charges of the receiver was to investigate, pursue compromise and settle any and all claims um, that the corporation or the receiver in its capacity as a receiver over the corporation may have against any third party including the insiders of that corporation. So it, it expressly. Indicated that that was what the receiver was supposed to do. Again, uh, perhaps ACC could have said, uh, Judge, we're going to bring a motion now to say that the receiver is not discharging its duties consistent with your order, and my client is being harmed. And
3: where in the order did it refer to um, shareholders, uh, controlling officers, directors, etc.? What, what paragraph in the order?
6: Uh, it is... I don't have the site handy, Judge. It's in paragraph J in the appointment order. Uh, it's in a very lengthy uh, section. And that's also, you know, uh, paragraph um,
7: 37, Your Honor. Paragraph J. So can I just get a, just some clarification? So setting aside the receiver here, Could LSI have brought a veil-piercing claim prior to receivership? Prior to the—certainly. Against against who?
6: Presumably the same group of respondents that they're seeking now. So the
7: corporation controlled by those people could have brought a veil-piercing claim against themselves? Well, I—well, but prior to the receivership— Does the uh, corporation have this veil-piercing claim outside of the receivership? See, I I don't— I don't believe so. And then, um, as I understand it, this idea that the receiver can stand and bring claims on behalf of creditors, your argument is not that there's anything specific in the statute that says that, and there's nothing specific in the appointment order that says that. If I, am I correct about that? Uh, that I'm unsure of, Your Honor, as I stand. So, here but today. your argument is the the only real source for that is this common law that's out there, some cases that use language that say that the receiver can bring claims on behalf of creditors. Correct. That's the basis for that. That's your legal authority for that. Yes. Okay, Thanks. It's you. the common law.
3: Counsel, I found uh, paragraph 37J of the order, and it refers to claims against any third parties, including insiders, directors, officers, and owners. Were Cohen, Chaffee, and Kobe any of those things? Yes, Would, indirectly. What, what
6: were they? So LSI holding... LSI Corporation, the insolvent debtor in this, was wholly owned by LSI Holdings Inc. And LSI Holdings Inc. was owned by Cohen and Chaffee. They were the sole shareholders. So were they insiders? Uh, I think as the term is generally used, Your Honor, they were insiders. And owners, albeit once removed.
3: You'd have to pierce the corporate veil to get to twice to get to them as owners, right? Uh, presumably, yeah. yes. Okay. Presumably.
6: I guess, in finishing up my remarks to the court, the the case I believe is is closest on the fact, however I appreciate the fact that it is not precedent before this court is the District of Minnesota case, Bartholomew versus Avalon Capital Inc. And in that case, the so-called insiders or shareholders of the corporation were pursued by a receiver for fraudulent transfer claims. Defendants in that case attempted to uh, have the case dismissed, indicating that the receiver did not have standing to assert those claims against uh, the insiders on on behalf of the the corporation. The district court disagreed and referred to the appointment order in that case issued by the district court. And in that appointment order, the receiver was authorized to investigate, pursue all claims um, that uh, that the receiver may have against any third party, including, among others, fraudulent transfer claims. Counsel,
3: let's assume you're right in that a Bill Pearson claim in this case was the property of the corporation, uh, and thus controlled by the receiver. Did the receiver get the court's permission to release any such claims against Cohen, Chaffee, and Kobe? Did, did I'm
6: sorry, I didn't follow the okay, last part Okay, let's
3: let's assume you're right that this Veal Pearson claim is the property of the corporation. It's corp, it's it's receivership property. It's a claim. All right. Okay. Let's let's assume that. Did the receiver get the court's permission to release any such claim against Cohen, Chaffee, and Kobe? It did not. It did not. This case,
6: and I know the court's asked a number of questions. Does the order provide this? Does the final judgment say that? It it really, in so many respects, is silent as to any of these issues. It doesn't really cut one way or the other. At the end of the day, a finding was made by the court that Cohen and Chaffee were entitled to these assets as secured parties. In so doing, I believe the court had to infer that the corporate entity was fully intact. And well, now, of course...
3: The, the statute in um, subdivision 1, B1, says, little one, to assert or when authorized by the court to release any rights, claims, causes of actions, or defenses of the respondent. Um, so if the veil if the piercing claim is really the property of the respondent, then didn't the receiver need to get the court's permission to release that or not pursue it?
6: Possibly, Your Honor. I guess I, I look at this so much differently. I don't look at the veil piercing claim as being the property of the debtor corporation. I look at it as a, as a remedy sought by one out of 160 creditors. And that remedy was to satisfy a judgment it had obtained or would obtain against LSI Corporation.
3: So you see the veil piercing claim as the property of Aaron Carlson Corporation? Correct or it's, it's remedy. I don't, I don't know if I'd call it a property. That's an interesting question. I think that was the first question I asked opposing counsel. Is it a claim or is it a remedy? Yeah, I mean, I, I look at it as a remedy because for Aaron Carlson to pursue
6: this veil piercing claim, there has to be some underlying indebtedness, and here it's the debt that no one disputes from LSI to ACC. And that's the vehicle for it to satisfy that debt, is to pierce the corporate veil. Of course, to do that, you almost have to disregard the entire uh, proceedings before the uh, receivership court, which essentially viewed LSI Corporation as a distinct entity in which a receiver should be appointed to collect assets, pay bills, and dissolve. And now, today, to pursue the alter ego claim, that would all have to be set aside. And I guess, you know, the ACC is asking that uh, LSI just didn't really exist when Cohen and Chaffee came aboard. And I think that is a collateral attack. And I think, under the principles of race judicata, that claim, the veil Pearson claim, could have been made in the receivership. It would have been far more economical, far fairer to the parties. All the information was present, and it could have been resolved then rather than now, some three years later, unless the court has any other questions.
5: Thank you, counsel. Thank you. Mr. Schwartz, you have 10 minutes for rebuttal.
0: Thank you, Your Honors. I'd like to start with uh, a comment Made by my distinguished opposing counsel here, that a veil-piercing claim, he said, is not property of the debtor corporation. I think that's exactly right. I think that's why it falls outside of the receivership. That is the question here uh, that we're here to answer. And when asked what statutory authority was given to a receiver to bring a veil-piercing claim, um, he said there was no provision of the statute that expressly said a veil piercing claim is within the authority of a receiver and is held by this court in Kramer versus Kramer. It's not this court's duty to make amend or change the statutory law, but only apply it. There is not a provision in chapter 576.29 that expressly gives a receiver the power that the defendants are asking for here.
5: Counsel, can you address the argument that opposing counsel made based on paragraph uh, 37J of the appointment order?
0: 37J of the appointment order provides that it's going to, the receiver is going to investigate, pursue, and compromise and settle any and all claims that the company may have against such directors or insiders. A veil piercing claim uh, is not a claim that the company has. A veil piercing claim is a claim that a creditor has against the shareholders. So it, I don't believe that it falls under that paragraph. Such a claim would be such as um, it goes hand in hand with the statute a fraudulent conveyance claim or an improper transfer to itself.
5: What about the part of paragraph J that the phrase illegal distribution claims? or other similar improper transactions. That feels a little like piercing the corporate veil to me.
0: I think that ties directly, Your Honor, to the provision in 576.29 subdivision 1B2 that gives the receiver the authority to to pursue the Uniform Fraudulent Conveyance Act, which is not an element of- The District
5: Court didn't need to do that. I mean, that was already in the statute doesn't the district court here seem to be doing something more I don't, than the statute?
0: I don't, I don't believe so, Your Honor. I think it's, it's taking, um, a lot of times these receiver orders are, they pretty much mimic what's in the statutory language to make sure that everybody's on the same page. And I think that that's what that was doing is, it's saying that the receiver here under the appointment order, which is consistent with the statutory authority, can bring such a fraudulent conveyance claim against the shareholders. That's not uh, that's not what a veil piercing claim is.
7: For for your veil piercing claim to succeed, kind of on its own, do you need a, a valid judgment against LSI? I, I I believe that you have to have the underlying judgment against
0: the corporation um, to be able to go because that's what you're seeking to. So,
7: under the receivership order approving the final report, I mean one of the paragraph paragraph six says no claim expense distribution that's not included in this order. Will be paid and all parties asserting claims on the assets of the receiver, which are essentially the assets of the corporation, shall be barred. Correct. So, what impact does that language have? I mean, if you need the judgment, does the the receivership kind of extinguish your judgment? I don't think so because I think the receivership extinguishes claims against
0: LSI, and that's all that the receiver was appointed over. I don't think it distinguishes claims
7: against the shareholders. But your cl- judgment against LSI came after the receivership, correct? Report was issued. So this receivership order is saying no more claims against LSI or its assets, and then you get a judgment after that,
0: correct? We had we, so how
7: does this how did this order not extinguish that claim before you even got the judgment?
0: We had a we had a with the pending litigation against LSI that was stayed, and then we had to bring. Uh, leave to be able to continue the case afterwards. There was, I don't believe that it extinguished, it, it extinguished the claims that w- the corporation had at that time against it. I don't think it extinguishes any claims that third-party creditor, creditors such as ACC has against the shareholders of the corporation. I think it's a separate and distinct question because it's separate and distinct property. It's not the property of the corporation.
2: Well in any event, uh, neither the receiver nor anyone else showed up to contest the right, your right, your client's right to secure what ultimately turned out to be a default judgment against uh, the corporation.
0: That's correct, Your Honor. And I, I, I want to touch on the, the the, comment in the briefing and during oral argument that uh, ACC could have somehow appealed the appointment of the receiver or that the receiver was too closely tied to these defendants um, when you're not even entitled to notice of it and you don't have standing to object to it I don't know how you could possibly have standing to appeal on it uh, that's the fundamental standing question of we didn't, we weren't even a secured creditor so we had no notice to the receivership property and no standing to object to the receiver well it continued to the extent that it, I think there was some winding up to do and to, to close the business. I don't believe that it, as we stand here today that it still exists, no. Um, you know, it, and we still had our, after the receiver. The- I don't believe that the receivership dissolved the corporation because our order against the corporation came after the receivership process. So that would have been an argument that they presumably could have made uh, in the underlying action. I also want to touch on the, the comments made about that the receiver found that Mr. Cohen and Shafi were secured parties in the receivership property or in the receivership action. That's a separate and distinct question, again, from whether there was uh, a veil piercing claim such that corporate formalities were not maintained or that they were intermingled property or assets um, that they're using for their own benefit and that the corporate form should be disregarded. All that looked at was whether there was a promissory note, for example, that was signed by the corporation to the individuals, whether there was a proper um, lending, subordination agreement, things like that. It did not look at all, and there's nowhere in any of the orders that the court will be able to find that the receivership resolved, looked at, investigated, or otherwise diminished ACC's veil-piercing claim.
3: Council, what's your answer to Mr. Wagner's argument regarding Subdivision 1B little 2 um, that says the receiver may maintain in the receiver's name or in the name of the respondent any action to enforce any right claim, etc.? I, th-
0: I don't think it's as broad and never-ending authority as has been advocated here. I think we look at um, it's got to be a claim of the respondent or related to Uh, Receivership property. It doesn't give the receiver carte blanche authority to assert any claim unrelated to here LSI Corporation. Um, That would that would be such a broad expansion of the authority that it would essentially be never ending. And if we look at so, what's the point of of subpart little two? I think. Yeah, I think the point of it is saying that the receiver can bring it in its own name. If it is a claim of the corporation, or the receiver can bring it in the name of LSI Corporation, if and only if it is a claim of the corporation. And a Bill Pearson claim is neither of those.
4: Council, um, from a sort of a big picture policy standpoint, I mean, one of the things that Mr. Wagner says to us today and in his brief is that if we adopt your position here, we open the door and maybe even floodgates of some sort for creditors such as your client to come three years, in this instance, you know, years after the fact to assert this veil-piercing claim. And I'm wondering what other claims might be in that same bucket. In other words, that are like a veil-piercing claim in, in the sense that you're not seeking um, uh, the property of the corporation you're seeking the property of these particular individuals. I'm just trying to think what other claims might be like that that would then be allowed to be brought years
0: after the fact outside of the receivership action. Can you think of any? I can't think of any, Your Honor. And separate to that is the, is the fact that a receivership is not meant to protect the shareholders that use the corporate form uh, essentially fraudulently. That's not what a receivership process is for. And so that, that policy slippery slope argument, I don't think provides support to their position. Now, if it, w- it certainly should not open the floodgates for more claims against LSI corporation. That's what the receivership was supposed to stop. It's not meant to prevent claims against the shareholders. It's meant to resolve the receivership, the, the receiver or the claims of and against the respondent. So we would respectfully request that the court here uh, reverse the Court of Appeals and the District Court and remand it. Thank Thank you. Thank you,
5: counsel. Thanks to both counsel for the help that you provided to the court in this case. This matter is submitted.